TED Audio Collective. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Hi, everyone. You are listening to After Hours. I'm Young Mi Moon, and I'm here with Mihir Desai and Felix Overholzer G. Hi, guys. Hey, hey. Young Mi. Hey, Young Mi. So it's exciting to get going again. Haven't seen each other for so long. We, we haven't. <laughs> a <This> long is, <laughs> summer. <laughs> yes, exactly. This is officially the start of season two. I know, and especially because every time I tried to have a conversation with Young Mi, she told me, save it for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Just, well, no, that was only when you said things that were interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so we should let our listeners know that we have relaunched the season on the HBR podcast network, which is very exciting. HBR, of course, our sister at um, Harvard Business School. And we're absolutely thrilled to be partnering with HBR on season two. It should be great. It's a great network of podcasts, and it's great to be partnering with them. Excellent. So how was your summer? Anything exciting happen for either one of you? Only exciting things. So my <laughs> sab- <laughs> my sabbatical leave started, uh, which is uh, fabulous. Uh, as you can imagine, it totally changed my life. <laughs> you look very relaxed. <laughs> Including sleeping in and traveling <laughs> and everything humans want to experience. Drinking a lot of wine, I can <laughs> yes. imagine. How do you know? <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Mahir? Um, gosh, it was great. It was a great summer. The highlight on the personal side was definitely that we completed the Lego Taj Mahal. So how many pieces? Oh God, I should have, I don't remember. But it's the largest Lego thing there is. This was a family project. It was me and my my girls. Yeah. And it was, it was great. And the end of the summer was our deadline. So of course, like it was like two weeks in August where you just went crazy. To try to get it It was so awesome. Although I do worry that I am one of those horrible fathers you know, who's like, no, well, like elbowing your kid out of the way. So like you get to do something. <laughs> I only did that once or twice, but it was great. It was a huge accomplishment. It was, it was really, really fun. Oh, fantastic. Okay. So my How about news, you? well, I became an empty nester this summer. Oh, so it's good that we're starting the podcast. I, need well, I thought we were things, supposed to say yay. No, no I need yeah. to fill the gaping hole. Oh, no. That's hard. No, it's, it's, um, the guys are doing great. My husband and I are adjusting. I used to disperse my attention to all of them. Right. And now it's just him. So he comes home and I have questions about his day. Oh, <laughs> God. So, so, it's, um, so he's getting used to the attention as well. But That's it's great. all good. That's yeah. Good. Okay. And, you know, we weren't able to podcast all summer. Was there a moment when there was some story in the news or something going on where you thought, oh, I wish we were podcasting? Well, I confess, all of the Tesla up and downs were so <laughs> oh, yes. fantastic. Uh-huh. And they were just, and we had talked about it yes. once. Yeah. And yeah. I, I kind of felt like it was like an ongoing soap opera. Yeah. Like we should have just been like serializing or something. Well, we could come back to it later. Oh, this we, we should definitely. Yeah. But yeah. It, that was a great one, I thought. Okay. Yeah, really interesting. What about you? I remember this one story in the Wall Street Journal that just 
completely floored me. And I thought about that. I thought about the podcast right away. I thought, oh my God, it would be amazing to talk about this. And it had basically tracked international murder rates. And it showed this really dramatic picture for Latin America. Just give you this one stat that I thought was, was really totally remarkable. If you, if you take together all the people who died in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria, that's about 900,000. Yeah. In the last six, seven years, uh, 2.7 million people in Latin America got murdered. That is crazy. Wow. And then they had this world map. And the interesting thing that you see is the further east you move, the safer the life safer is. Gets. Oh, wow. So uh, compared to Latin America, the U.S. is about 10 times as safe. Uh, and then uh, Africa has about a quarter of the murder rate of the United States. Europe is half of that. And then as you go further east, it's just safer and safer wow. and safer. And, but I just thought the trends... And the fact that basically Latin Americans are leaving Latin America because mm. it's just too yeah. dangerous for anyone to live there. Yeah. Really dramatic. Wow. I wish we could have talked about it. Hmm. What about you, Youngmi? Did you, did you, you miss know, us? Did you miss us at all? <laughs> <laughs> I missed you. Ter- you know, when I really wished we had a podcast, and I still do, is um, I wanted to talk about Colin Kaepernick all summer. Mm. <laughs> and, and the um, Nike campaign? Or the- I was thinking of you, actually. Ups and downs. Yeah, it's actually been an ongoing saga sort of culminating in the Nike yeah, campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when the Nike campaign hit, I thought, ah, oh, I wish we were taping this. Oh, that week. would have been great. Yeah, so it would have been good. So but maybe there'll be another opportunity to do it. Mm-hmm. But um, we have topics for tonight, right? Oh, yeah, yes. perfect. Okay, I want to talk about minimum wage. And I know, Mihir, you have something you want to talk about as well, right? Uh, I do. It is the one-year anniversary of Me Too. Ah. So we should talk about it. Yeah. Fantastic. So this week, Amazon announced that it was raising its minimum wage to $15 an hour. This directly affects about 200,000 of their employees that were making below that, in addition to another estimated 100,000 employees that they tend to hire during the holiday season. But this is a little bit of a, I don't want to say trend, but you know, earlier this year, Walmart announced that it was going to an $11 an hour minimum wage. Target has moved to $11 and is plans to eventually get to $15. So I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on this, starting with Amazon, whether or not you think it's a good idea for Amazon, what, what is Amazon thinking, and then maybe we can talk about minimum wage more generally. What do you guys think? Well, so I think it was the, the initial response, I think, was, was a little mixed. Uh, on the one hand, I think it was seen, you know, a, a big, important retailer yeah. uh, that moves wages in a direction that we've now been waiting for wage growth for, for quite a while. And that seems yeah. to be just an indication that, yes, Amazon, just like everybody else, they find it more difficult to find workers. They find it more difficult to hire. And guess what? Wages are going to go up. A little mixed in the sense that at the same time as they raised the minimum wage, they also changed the compensation structures. That they took away some stock compensation, yeah. mm-hmm. they took away some incentive pay. And then interestingly, they had to maneuver a little bit and say, no, 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 we're actually increasing wages for everyone and we'll make up for the loss of the incentive programs. So it was the implementation was not as clean as I would have expected from Amazon, right. mm-hmm. but, the, but the direction of the change, I think, is, is largely unexpected. I confess, whenever I think about Amazon doing something, I think there's like some 
jujitsu move behind it. <laughs> and so in my mind, this is in a way really interesting because if other retailers have to compete on wages with Amazon, they're going to get killed. And so I thought of it in a kind of a weirdly competitive way, right? Which is they are clearly responding to political pressures. But I think it's also a little bit of an interesting game against competitors, which is they're kind of raising the bar on wages to workers. They're able to do it because they're Amazon, generate amounts of cash. And other retailers with slimmer margins are going to get hammered. So I thought there was like a weird, maybe competitive thing going on too. By taking a big jump, we're actually going to cripple others. And by I know, the way, right as we're moving into the holiday season. Oh, right, that's true. Right, right into is, the holiday right season. Right is when everybody is looking to hire Oh, that's interesting. Workers. Yeah, yeah. And then it comes with this dual announcement, we're going to do this for Amazon. And then we'll lobby in Washington for yes. everybody having to yes. raise to fifteen dollars, yes. which is this competitive effect. Which essentially that you're raises about. the cost of competing for everyone. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And then no one can bear it as easily as as Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, so on the one hand I agree with everything we just said about for Amazon, this feels very Machiavellian. Right? Yeah. <laughs> with everything <laughs> in, in, in the most brilliant way. Yeah, exactly. On the other hand, I look at this segment of the economy and I think, where is wage growth going to come from? I mean, what's been fascinating about all the job reports that have come out is the unemployment rate hasn't been this low for 50 years. Yeah, it's incredible. And then what's really astounding is how wages haven't gone up, up, up. I mean, they've gone up a bit, but not even close to what you would expect, given how tight the employment market is. And to me, what that tells me is that the simplest explanation is that employers don't feel pressure to raise wages. That's right, yeah. Which means that a lot of this job growth is happening among hourly workers. In other words, I think there's something very structural going on in the sense that it used to be if you took a minimum wage job, it was because you were a teenager or because it was a transition to something hopefully better. You know, it was your first job out of school or something like that. But the days of making 30, 40, 50 bucks an hour working on a GM assembly line, oh, yeah. those jobs are like gone forever. And so there's this whole middle layer of jobs that have just gone away. And so then the question is, we're looking at a generation of workers that are looking at a lifetime of minimum wage employment. Like, that's not okay. I mean, we've got to. And then the problem is, of course, is that no single employer has any incentive to raise these wages. And so it almost takes a player like Amazon who can afford to do it to kind of push us forward. So I'm now at this point where I'm thinking, look, someone's got to move us forward. There's no momentum to raise the federal minimum wage. So why can't a big company that can afford to do it begin to move us in this direction? Well, what do you, but do you think actually there is a role for the government to do this? Because we have seen a big movement yeah. on minimum wage laws at, at the local level, yeah. but not, mm-hmm. as you point out, at the federal level, yeah. but at the local level. So just to be clear, I would absolutely be in favor of increasing the federal minimum wage. But we know, I mean, from Seattle, we know yeah. it's hurt workers, right? So a, Seattle went to $11 in 2015 and then to $13 in 2016. And we have this recent research study by uh, people at the University of Washington, and they find that uh, wages went up by 3% among low-wage workers, uh, which is great, what you would hope. Ours, because they're hourly workers, fell by 9%. So net, it was a negative $125 a month for the workers who got protected. So it is, it is just a bad idea. Well, I think, I confess I'm with you. Look at the European unemployment situation. And that's got to be 
uh, and we know empirically that's a function of labor regulations. And so, I don't know, this is, I feel young me like this is one of those settings where like we, we are going to end up doing things that we think are going to benefit uh, a strata of society in well-intentioned, like tariffs, right? And it's going to end up hurting them more. And that, this is like... So a, that, here's, here's why I disagree, okay? First of all, let me just point out that wages are growing in every other part of the economy. So if you look at senior executives, their wages sure. have gone up. Yep. If you look at the entire professional class, their wages have gone up. The middle class is disappearing. And if you look at people at the lowest level, wages are stagnant. Okay, so just, just think about what that means for us culturally for a second, okay? The second thing I would point out is that in this country, whenever we have done anything that benefits workers, it has raised the cost of business and has made things worse in the beginning, and then it makes things better over time. So if you think about really just about any HR structure, so limiting the number of hours people can work, imposing rules on overtime pay, disability, health insurance, I mean, you could just go down the list. And in every time we've had to raise the cost of competing for companies, it's made us worse in the short term, but in the long term, it's been better for workers. And I think at some point we have to begin to bite the bullet and ingest the costs associated with elevating this tier of the economy. So I'm not sure if I'm optimistic when we think about short-term versus long-term. It's not going to get better than the 125 that we just stole from your pocket in a situation where your wages didn't grow to begin with. It's actually going to get worse. And the second thing is, I, I think we have other instruments. I mean, we talked about universal yeah. basic income. Uh, I completely agree with your overall sentiment that we need to make sure that the middle class and Americans more generally can afford to live comfortably in this country. But I'm just deeply skeptical whether government mandated minimum wages are the way to do it. I, I'm going to be on Felix's side on this only because of the European experience. I mean, I think we know that big chunks of European industry have been made uncompetitive because of labor regulations. So as much as I want it to be true, I, I can't quite believe it will be true. Let me come at it one final way. Okay. <laughs> Would you guys be in favor of lowering the federal minimum wage or getting rid of it altogether? Should there not be a floor at all? Look, uh. look at you hesitating. Okay, so then, okay, so assuming that's a very difficult question. thing to agree to, assuming that we all agree there needs to be some minimum floor, what we're arguing about is at what level is that floor? That's what we're arguing about. Not are we paying them more than what their market rate is. We're, we're saying, what's the floor? What's the minimum? Okay. And what I'm saying is that the minimum that we have in place right now, it's yeah. so outdated given how pumped up the economy has mm -hmm, become mm -hmm. it, at all other levels. And I understand the European example, but for every country you can name for whom it's hurt, you can name another country where worker protections, Asia, for example, so many Asian countries, when you begin to put in better worker protections, everybody benefits. So I tell you what, let's keep both of these on the burner and come back to them. Sure. Yeah, I'm absolutely. sure we're going to yeah. talk about Amazon again, and we've got to keep this conversation yeah. about minimum wages going as well. Yeah, and low wages. Okay, great. Okay, Mihir, you wanted to talk about Me Too. Yeah, well, so it is the one-year anniversary of the Me Too movement, at least formally. And it just strikes me as having been 
something that was so profound for business, so profound for society, that we should reflect on it and maybe reflect on it in a slightly different way, meaning um, reflect on it in the sense of how we have changed our thinking about this topic or how maybe what we have learned during that time. And just as obviously a recap, you know, it began with Harvey Weinstein and it has gone all the way through um, different industries. You know, most recently I was struck by this blowback against um, comedians who are trying to rehabilitate themselves. There were a few essays by people who were trying to rehabilitate themselves and there was a sense of which it was not time yet. And when is it okay to come back? So there are so many things about this movement that I think are interesting. And I loved our previous conversation about it. So what do, what do you think you guys have learned in this year of the Me Too movement? One thing I'm, I'm thinking about, and, and is I think personal in the sense that I think the three of us are often in this position, is that it really, ultimately, it speaks to power and people who have power. And it's interesting to me, even in conversations with colleagues of ours at the university, how some people are really aware of the power that they have, and then very often we're less than perfectly aware. So one of the things that I hope for myself, but more generally for business and society, that, that this awareness of when do I speak from a position of power, that I think is a key ingredient in moving us forward so that, that we can get better at reading the signals. Obviously, it's sort of at the very atrocious end of Me Too. There's no miscommunication whatsoever. Right. That's just brute force. Uh, but I think there are interesting segments where it's less obvious, where it's less clear, and where I think people in positions of power, if you have greater awareness of when you have and when you exert power, that that's part of what needs to happen. So I have been struck by how much emotional whiplash there has been throughout yeah. the year, you know, and I think as a woman, what's been difficult is being dispassionate about anything. Mm -hmm. It's it's so hard not to react viscerally, emotionally, to every little new chapter that unfolds. Mm -hmm. And that's related to a roller coaster of optimism and pessimism, and optimism and pessimism. And so one of the things I find myself constantly saying to myself is that progress is always uneven. I mean, think about like LGBTQ rights. Mm -hmm. There's still so much homophobia mm -hmm. in the world. There's so much transphobia in the world. But have we made progress? Yes, we've absolutely made absolutely, progress. Yeah. And so to remind myself, this is what progress feels like. It's really, it's uneven. Two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back. One other thing I would say, there's one bucket of behavior that everybody agrees is unacceptable, and everyone agrees that a response to that should be unequivocal. But then there are all of these other buckets of behavior that are also unacceptable, but it's not clear if our response to that should be as severe. And I right. think that's where it gets really, really tricky because mm -hmm. I think it's incumbent upon us to be able to have a conversation. And yet that's where all the emotionality comes out because if you you come out on the wrong side of that, you can very quickly be so labeled. So do you think as, we've kind of gone too far in that sense? You know, I, I think in general, not just in this domain, but we have become a country that's forgotten how to talk to each other when we disagree about stuff. And I think it's really evident in this domain. And so particularly, as I said, there's some things that are black and white, but there's some things that exist in these shades of gray, 
which is not to mean that they're not unacceptable behaviors. They're absolutely unacceptable. But we should be able to talk about what it means to respond to those behaviors and whether or not there's any kind of rehabilitation or remediation that could bring some kind of reconciliation. I feel like we're really bad at that. Yeah, yeah. What have you learned, Mihir? Well, I think two things. One is I've been struck by how much I've moved during the course of the last year in my thinking. And it's not that I was a Neanderthal or anything. (laughs) Um, But I guess I had always thought I had these strong women in my life, and so basically I get it. And I think in this last year I've moved a lot in the direction of uh, feeling so much more sympathetic towards what is going on. Um, And, you know, even in particular in our podcast as one example, just during the course of taping it, I felt like, you know, wait a second, is is what I'm, when I heard the words come out of my mouth, I wondered, like, what am I really saying? And so I guess I feel like I'm migrating in a way, you know, and Wait, can your... I just interject a second? So, Felix, you weren't there, but last year, Mihir mm-hmm. and I did that live episode. I, I remember, on yes. Uh-huh. So we taped this episode, and then we posted it. And then afterwards, uh, Mihir, you called me. I did. I remember. I did. Yeah. And you said, I just listened to the podcast. And you should, are you comfortable? Well, yeah, no, sure. I mean, I think, first off, even during the podcast, if you might remember, yeah. like a woman made a point, and I kind of didn't agree with it. And then by the end of the podcast, I did. And then listening to myself, I just thought to myself, you know, I didn't feel proud. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. I didn't feel proud of what I was saying. And I didn't, it was, it was just a hard thing. Yeah. I've, I've actually had led discussions on Me Too since then. And it's, every time I do it, it's, it's like revelatory. Because you hear people say things and then you, you realize how much you might sympathize with that or not sympathize with that. But to just two quick things. One is, you know, on your point about power, I do find myself more and more attracted to like these, what I would have previously considered radical feminist views about power that I would have dismissed previously. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is on justice. I think the really interesting stuff now is on justice, right? Like, how do you, these people get rehabilitated? And what happens if we make mistakes? I think a lot of my previous views were anchored in the sense of the falsely accused. We have to protect the falsely accused. Like, I worry a lot about that in the criminal justice mm-hmm. system. Because I think people get accused falsely and it's really bad. <laughs> but in this setting, I don't think we should worry as much about that. This is just going to be a period of rough justice. Like, and by rough justice, I mean um, <laughs> mistakes will be made. It's a period of transition. There will be mistakes. And that's okay. And I think in part that's okay because it's been a period of rough justice the other direction for a long time. Maybe it's okay if we make some mistakes. I know that sounds so, really bad. Like, <laughs> but, <laughs> that sounds really bad. But maybe let me put okay. a, but let me look, put there's a rough twist. justice everywhere. Yeah, but let me put a twist on it. So I, I've actually been thinking exactly about the same thing. So one of the things I have been thinking about, mostly, you know, watching the endless Supreme Court drama, is doesn't it really depend on the environment in which we pass judgment? The Supreme Court nomination is essentially a job interview. If we get the job interview wrong, I'm not really concerned about that. So there I'm totally okay with, you know, a standard that says, well, there's a lot of suspicion, we can't quite figure out what happened, but you have no inherent right, and it's actually very unlikely that anyone will ever be a Supreme Court justice, so I want to be really tough. Right. Uh, But say if it comes to, I don't know, a long prison sentence, I think maybe I want to be much more careful, because they're actually rough justice, then means much more significant costs. And so I've been 
fascinated by the often swift and often also silent corporate response, where people just let go. And in a way, there, I'm sure, if you looked at the details, it would be very gray, like to yeah. your earlier point. These cases, I think, very often are not black and white. Yeah. But we let people go very quickly. And in part, I think that feels totally okay, because guess what? You're going to get a job somewhere else. Right. I don't know if you saw uh, Helen Rosner wrote in the New Yorker this piece about what to do about the restaurant industry. Uh-huh. Like, it's just not a great place to work for, for women in many, many, many restaurants. And, you know, she gets all these proposals and people have all these ideas. And then the one that she, after all this research, thinks is like the way to go is to make it mandatory in every restaurant to have a poster that talks about the fact that uh, sexual assault and sexual violence is, is not tolerable. And I had sort of two reactions when I read that piece. The first one was that here is, unlike many other ideas, here's actually something we could literally do tomorrow. Because guess what? People have designed posters, they exist, they're of various quality, and so on and so on. And then it was also after someone who had thought about this issue so hard and had spoken to so many people, really? This is like the best we can come up with? Yeah, a poster? Yeah. You've got to be kidding me. And, I, I, I and share I, your second reaction. And, and yeah. that's... That's sort of the, the sense that, yes. yes, it feels like progress, and it feels like, oh, my God, we're also like, so far away <laughs> from where we need to be but and this, what we need to do. But this actually captures sort of the most typical example. It typically happens in the most mundane of circumstances. Mm-hmm. You're working at a restaurant. Somebody comes up to you, says, yep. touches you, something. It's a moment that happens in 10 seconds. No one else is around, and then it passes. And then the question is, okay, as a woman, what are you supposed to do with that? And your options are so extreme. Do nothing or do something um, right. which involves reporting and, and mm-hmm. all the rest. You know, there's this um, – did you guys ever watch that Black Mirror episode? There's this one episode where you live in a world where everybody has a rating that's visible all the time. In every interaction you have. Feels like China. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. But every interaction you have at the coffee store, every every interaction you have, you're constantly rating each other. And so you go through life and every interaction contributes or detracts from this rating. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking about this in the context of of Me Too. (laughs) By the way, I'm not in favor of of this more generally. But there is just something about being able to give the feedback to people that might not be aware of how what they think is maybe a little mm-hmm. bit damaging is mm-hmm. actually really damaging. And maybe even, I don't, do you guys know your Uber rating? Yes. Okay. I do. So what if, what, I mean, not in the sense that everybody sees everybody else's, but what if people could rate each other anonymously? And I, can, I know if I look at my Uber, even. in the workforce, and if I look at my Uber rating, I think, Gee, like I'm a really nice person. Why is it not perfect? <laughs> like, what did I ever do? Yes, right. And and you know maybe uh, it'll create. So some I like I I love your idea of small steps, like little things that you can do. Maybe that'll feel a little better than the poster. So let me try to ask um, to wrap this up. Tell me where this goes, and are you kind of optimistic? Do you see things changing rapidly, or is this a blip? And you know, just as to recall. The Anita Hill hearings were considered a very important moment, and yet now, in retrospect, it looks a little more like a blip. <laughs> and so tell me what you see happening going forward, young me. So it depends 
literally on what day you ask me. You know, so, <laughs> so recently I was communicating back and forth with my college roommate. I graduated in Kavanaugh's class at Yale. Oh. We were in that class. And as you can imagine, the Kavanaugh hearings created a whole bunch of conversation among my classmates about what the atmosphere was like on campus at the time. And what was depressing about the conversation was how little has changed, really, because mm. so many of the, the things that we're confronting back then, if you go to a college campus today, are still really omnipresent. Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, that's actually not true. That's actually, I, I really think that's not true. And I think that it, I, I think there is something about this entire generation of young adults growing up under the umbrella of this Me Too movement. It's got to permeate somehow. You know, as I said earlier, I think progress tends to be uneven, but it's still progress. And we can't forget that. That's when I'm at my most optimistic, that's what I think. What do you say, Felix? I think I may be more on, on your more optimistic side of things. I do feel, in almost every conversation I have now, I have a sense there's a lower level of tolerance. Like the kinds of things that you would have heard in male locker rooms, right. like just, you know, five, ten years ago. I think now it's not just, you know, like the funny joke that no one can say anything, even if you think it's in bad taste, because it's pervasive. It's a, it's a sense that things that used to be tolerated are not okay now. And that, I think, can be, can be very powerful. Maybe the most optimistic example that I can think of is drunk driving. You know how this was just not really an issue if you had a little bit of alcohol and you would still drive? And today, and again, wrapped up in a generational change, it's basically unthinkable that you, what are you, what are you doing? Like you're drinking and driving, that is just not okay. And some of the most positive effects, I think, of Me Too feel a little bit like that, where just people will look at each other and say, like, who are you? Like no, no reasonable person would do such a thing. And, yeah. and, I, and I think that's, that's good. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic as well. I do think this is a slow-moving phenomenon, you know, meaning um, this is about deeply rooted beliefs and social structures. And, you know, part of what I think I learned over the last year is how deeply rooted it is. So I feel like we've, I don't know what the right analogy is, you know, in terms of making progress, the slope kind of went up, mm -hmm. went up a lot. Mm -hmm. But, man, it's a slow-moving phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, this has been the story yeah. of a millennia, and it is going to get better now because of the movement than it would have otherwise. But, man, it's slow-moving. Okay, I'm sure we'll revisit this again. Sure. Okay, guys, I'm dying to know what your picks are for the week because we haven't done picks for months. For a long <laughs> and time. And so <laughs> you have a whole summer's worth of stuff you've read, watched, places you've visited. So I need a recommendation from both of you. Felix? All right. So I used the summer to read very broadly uh, books about uh, artificial intelligence. And out of all the books that I've read, the one that I would recommend is a book called AIQ, How People and Machines Are Smarter Together. It's written by uh, two academics, Nick Polson and James Scott. And I recommend it for, for two reasons. It does what all of these books do. You know, basically it gives you a flavor of what, what artificial intelligence is, how it works, and so on and so on. But I think the reason for everyone to read the book is they have these introductory examples of scientific problems that people solved. And interestingly, it's mostly stories of women who are sometimes recognized, sometimes not recognized, that solved really fundamental scientific problems that now echo 
in how we can do things even faster and even better with, with artificial intelligence. i just give you two examples. Henrietta Leavitt is the astronomer who basically figured out how to measure distance in space. You know, hundreds of millions of mm -hmm. light years. Yeah. We actually didn't know how to do that. Yeah. And she sat at Harvard and poured over images and figured out basically what then established modern astronomy. And then they're using that example, how she did that, and link That's it to astronomy. Or Grace Hopper is the mathematician who first thought of having computers solve database kind of problems. And how she got to that insight, I think, is reflected now in progress in AI. And so it's a, whether you're a history buff or whether you're really interested in, in AI, it's a, really, it's a really great read. AIQ. AIQ, how people and machines are smarter together. Awesome. Okay. All right. What about you, Mihir? Um, well, I'm torn, so I'm going to give a high-minded and a low-minded one. So just as a follow-up on the, the Me Too discussion, um, this author, Rebecca Traster, who I have been following a little bit, she has a new book out called Good and Mad. And it's like a full-throated kind of polemic for rising anger by women, telling people women should be angrier than they are. And I don't agree with everything in it, but man, it is well-written, and she has a point of view. And by the end of it, you, you kind of wonder, man, why aren't people angrier? Like, why, aren't, why isn't there more? Like, why aren't there riots? You know? <laughs> like, sometimes I've wondered that. Anyway, so she's trying to address that. Um, the more lighthearted one is, uh, if you're looking for something to stream and to binge, I got Better Call Saul. Which oh, oh. is, oh, you know, so look, you got to take your time with it, but... Um, Do you watch this show? Oh my God, it's so good. So just for, um, obviously I'm with two people who do not appreciate Better Call Saul, so <laughs> <laughs> let me just explain. So it's the pre, it's the um, series that goes before Breaking Bad, um, done by... As if we needed... Oh my God, Breaking Bad is like the best... Okay, okay, I'm all right, sorry, all right. I so, And Better Call Saul comes before, and it's about how um, this lawyer, Jimmy McGill basically becomes corrupt and it goes over several seasons it's so good so amazing have you seen it felix so these got both breaking bad and better calls all always <laughs> i don't know if you remember young me but you once gave me this advice which i sometimes think about is if you see something or if you interact with a person who makes you cynical stay away oh that's, that's how i feel about these shows oh like breaking bad i felt like after watching i don't know i don't remember yeah, how many I seasons get into it. like it just made me more cynical and i thought oh my good friend young me her advice yes. stay away and pure well, ass. i think that, <laughs> i think there's something to that but you know the but he has such natural optimism <laughs> that he, he can actually ingest yes. exactly. a lot of yeah. cynicism anyway. and still maintain his positive so outlook. There, those are my two uh, two two <laughs> okay so my recommendation is so i i bought a new house this summer oh. and um sold my old house and it was a process that i really dreaded because i've hated every experience i've ever had with a real estate agent and so this year, uh, I decided I was going to try something different. Mm -hmm. And I tried this service called Redfin. And I actually didn't know that much about it. The only thing I knew about it was that uh, the agents that work with you, they do not work on commission. And I have to tell you that one small difference in the business model just so dramatically changed the experience I had with both selling and buying my home. I don't know 
very much about the company. I don't want to know that much about the company. I hope they're doing well, but I, what I can tell you is that the experience, I felt like I got everything that I would want from sort of huh. a concierge real estate agent, yeah. Yeah. Um, except with a really modernized back end because they have a technology infrastructure and without any of the negative baggage. It was wow. like the yeah. best of all possible. Wow. Interesting. Because people, really, people, when they do real estate, always end up kind of unhappy. You know what I mean? It's like set up with for the transactions. Yeah, exactly. the transactions. Yeah. Yeah. What really what's really fascinating about these agents, the one thing I did learn is that they operate on salary. But the one thing that their bonuses are based on is at the end of the process, when you've closed and you are done, you get one question. It's an NPS question. And their bonus is based on how... Net promoter you know, score. Net promoter would score. You yeah, would you recommend the service? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, would you recommend wow, the service to anyone else? Your response to that one just holistic estimation of how you experience the thing once it's all said and done yeah uh, that determines how well they do and it was Sounds really great. so i recommend i have a little anecdote as you both of you know we have all of these ceos and guest speakers at hbs and we have a colleague luo hung she wrote a case about red oh, she, okay. and she had the ceo in her class and this never happens to me that i listen to a ceo in class and think maybe i should work for that company And it happened to me with them. Wow. I don't know if the business is going to be a success. I think there's lots of difficulties, oh, yeah, as always. It's a challenging But space. boy, is it inspiring what they're trying to do. Wow. And, and okay. it's nice to see it reflected yeah. in your experience. Oh, yeah. I'll have you guys over. Sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> You're taped there. Excellent. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is After Hours. After Hours.